Hello everyone and welcome to Fathom. My name is Anizi and I'm your host. Here at Fathom, we believe that in order to lead a joy-filled and fulfilling life, one must have the courage to pursue that which they find meaningful. But how do you do that in our busy modern world where internal and external obstacles abound? Through conversations with guests who are experimenting with life and adulting relatively successfully, or courageously I should say, will bring raw and honest conversations that will hopefully add value to you, our listener. Let's dive in. Hello, guys. Wherever this finds you, I truly hope that you're doing well, that you have woken up and decided to put your foot in front of the other despite your external circumstances. But before we continue, I wanted to say that I continue to be blown away by your feedback and your support for the show. It truly means a lot to me. I want to request kindly could you please leave us a review from whatever platform that you listen from um it could be apple spotify google we are now on amazon music you know your platform so if you could please go over there and leave us a five stars (laughs) you know five star review would definitely help other listeners to easily find our show and now it is my pleasure to introduce my next guest Dr. Sangu Delhi. Sangu is the CEO of CarePoint, uh, formerly known as Africa Health Holdings, a tech forward healthcare system operating across the African continent, focused on building Africa's healthcare future. He's also the founder and chairman of Golden Palm Investments Corporation, an investment holding company focused on building world-class technology companies in Africa. Golden Palm Investments has backed startups such as Andela, M Pharma and Flutterwave, and its portfolio companies have raised over $1.2 billion in venture financing. Dr. Sangu also sits on several boards. He is a trustee of the Pedi School. He's a board member of Ashes University in Ghana. He's a member of the Harvard Medical School Dean's Global Health and Service Advisory Council. He's a co-chair of the Leadership Council of Harvard Center for African Studies. He's a member of Harvard University's Joint Committee on Alumni Affairs and Development. He is also a member of the Selection Committee of the Rhodes Scholarship for West Africa. And he has previously served as an elected director on the board of Harvard's Alumni Association. Dr. Sangu graduated with a Bachelor of Arts with the highest honors in African Studies and Economics from Harvard College He has a doctor of law from Harvard Law School. He has a master's in business administration from Harvard Business School. He has a master's in international human rights law from the Oxford University. And he has a PhD in African studies and anthropology from the University of Birmingham. He is admitted to practice law in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. Dr. Sangu is a TED fellow He's a Desmond Tutu Fellow, he's an Eisenhower Fellow, and he's a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. He also recently wrote a book called Making Futures, and the book has been shortlisted for the Financial Times and McKinsey Brackenbauer Prize for Best Business Books by an author under age 40. 
But in all fairness, I describe Sangu as the man who does the impossible with his time because as much as that was a very long bio, I'm pretty sure that there is a whole page that I'm probably skipping. But I personally love his ability to bring levity to any room while still still being real, you know, and serious about solving various problems. So yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation and I hope you are too. Hello, Dr. Sangu. Akwaba, it is Hello. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, how are you doing? I am doing well. I am doing well. Mm. Um, I can't believe it's already uh, almost the end of Q1. It's like the year just started today. Exactly. You know, time time flies. Time flies. I, we're just in 2022. Now it's like quarter one of, you know, 23 is done. But that's life, you know, like it means you're having fun and probably busy doing great things. <laughs> so they say. <laughs> yeah, okay, so just for our audience, uh, I just want to maybe, I, I've, I've already done an introduction, uh, but uh, to share how we met. So we first met in Accra in 2019, uh, thanks to Mauli Dake. And uh, we were recently together in Switzerland earlier this year. Um, so it's good to be reconnected again thank you so much for gracing our podcast it was long overdue but i believe this is you know the perfect time um and since i want to squeeze so much into this conversation so i want to get straight into it um i have structured this conversation into three pieces basically so i want to talk about sangu the person uh sangu the investor author and scholar and then Sangu, the coach. I know you don't call yourself a coach, but with everything you've accomplished, um, I think there's so much you can share, you know, with me and also with, you know, my audience. Okay, so to start with Sangu, the person, um, would you paint a picture for me of your childhood? I mean, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like generally? Uh, yeah, so... You know, I grew up in Ghana. I was the last of uh, five kids. Had an older sister and three older brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, my father is a is a is a doctor and a human rights activist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of grew up from a young age immersed in some of his activism work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember particularly at the time um, we were his organization, the Afghan Commission of Health and Human Rights for Motors, was holding a number of refugees from Liberia and Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. So I got a chance to grow up with them, mm. and that was uh, quite formative for me. Mm. Um, I uh, grew up in a a very Pan-African family, mm. uh, while obviously proudly Ghanaian. Yeah. Um, we also have some, uh, a bit of Egypt and Burkina Faso in the family as well. Oh. So I always joke that we're in some ways uh, African mats. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. That's really cool. Um, are there any significant events that happened during your formative years that w- you would say strongly influence, 
you know, the path that you have taken? Well, um, I mean, look, there, there are a couple of things uh, that, as I reflect on, uh, mattered. Mm. Uh, one thing I'll point out is I was a bit fortunate mm. in that my parents did not clamp down on my dreams. They did not, um, you know, back then kids were to be seen, but not heard. Mm, true. Um, and I was very vocal. I had lots of opinions mm. and I like to share those opinions. Mm. And in a lot of settings at that time, they'll tell you, hey, shut up. Mm. Right? Or why should this little child be speaking with adults? Yeah. <laughs> um, but to my parents' credit, they, um, you know, they allowed me to engage. Um, they, so what that does is it gives you confidence in your ideas. Mm. Right? It, it makes you feel validated. Um, and, and I think that was quite important for my development. Mm. Uh, the other, of course, the other now, uh, quite good story is when I was five or six and I wrote a letter to the headmaster of Harvard, well, headmaster, because that's what I thought <laughs> his title was. Um, and of course the rest is history. Mm. Wow. What was the the letter about? Well, I had seen some materials um, in my father, on my father's desk mm. that had Harvard University on it. Okay. And I asked him what university was. And he said, that's where you go to get smart. <laughs> and I asked I like him that. what Harvard was. And his eyes lit up and he said, Oh, that's where you go to get really smart. Mm. So uh, I wrote to the headmaster. Um, and some context, you know, I used to watch these cartoons about Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And so in my mind, mm. Harvard was this place in Greece where mm. you wear togas, you sit around, you have these pillars and you learn. Mm. Uh, so I wrote a letter to the headmaster of Harvard asking uh, that I wanted to join. This is what I've heard about the school. I'm five years old. I'm in Ghana, etc., wow. etc. Et about eight months later, I get a letter back hmm. from New Rudenstein. Wow! In which I learned three things. Hmm. The first is that it's. It's not in Greece. It's in a place called Cambridge, <laughs> Massachusetts. Yes. The second is that his title is not headmaster. Mm -hmm. It's president. Yes. And the third, as he told me in his own words in the letter, age mm. five is too early even for Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. But that's really yeah. impressive. I mean, which five-year-old or, or which cartoons even are about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle? I mean, are, were your parents like intentionally setting you up 
for you know success because that's not what i watched as a kid no i mean i mean you must have been very brilliant as well i mean to give yourself a shot at the best schools possible you know were you like a strong academic performer throughout the years before you know before you i went was to Harvard for undergrad yeah mm. yeah i was i was uh i was top of my class mm. hmm. okay so you've gone to I was the residence net Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I can't. I mean, <laughs> it's not hard to guess, you know, looking at, you know, your track record and everything. Um, but I mean, okay, so my my other question is, I mean, you've gone to Harvard undergrad, Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School, University of Oxford. I mean, what privileges have come with that, you know, pedigree that you would say you you are currently using to serve yourself? Um, in the continent? Um, so look, I, I, I've always believed that it's a, uh, it's a privilege mm. um, to get an opportunity uh, for further education at some of these institutions. Mm. Um, not just because they are ranked what they are ranked, mm. uh, but because of the experience mm. and the resources available, uh, the opportunity mm. to work with the world-class faculty, um, the resources available for research, mm. um, the, the quality and caliber mm. of uh, of your colleagues and students. Mm. Um, it's it's really a, a phenomenal uh, place to to grow and develop. Mm. You know, and um, what has it to answer your question? What have been the benefits? Mm. Um, well, apart from getting an excellent education, which I think in and of itself. Um, is very much worth it, mm-hmm. right? In terms of expanding your horizons, um, developing uh, problem-solving toolkits, um, and basically equipping yourself to be able to navigate whatever challenges life may throw your way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, one of the best parts of, you know, being a part of um, the Harvard Oxford family um, is the connection to the broader alumni network. Mm. Um, and I have found a lot of incredible support from fellow alums. Mm. Um, and and that to me is actually one of the 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 best part mm. about being affiliated with these institutions is the people. It always boils down to the people. Mm. Mm. That's good. And when you say support, I mean, is it is it support um, in material terms as well? Like, for example, I mean, I know you're an investor. Um, like, if is it support in that sense as well? Like if you're raising funds for different things, then, you know, you, you have a network that you can tap into um, for those things oh, as well. 
Absolutely. Look, it's across the board. Mm-hmm. All right. It's across the board in the sense that, you know, um, right from when I had to get to my first internship in college, mm. I relied on the magnanimity of, of alumni mm. who were willing to give me a shot. Right. Mm. Um, a lot of in, in, you know, from raising capital for my ventures um, to getting support for some of the uh, non-profits initiatives I've done, down to even just, you know, just counsel, advice, mm, yeah. guidance, mentorship. Uh, I've, I've really been the beneficiary of um, a lot of love and support, mm. um, which is also why I feel uh, compelled, really, mm. to pay it forward. Mm. Um, so I think someone with, you know, your, your kind of background, you know, academic background, you know, ex- work experience, um, I feel like the world is literally your oyster, right? You could, you know, wake up and go work in Hong Kong if you wanted to or Brazil. Um, like, why did you choose to uh, bring all of that to the continent uh, when you probably had <laughs> other more lucrative options? Yeah, I mean, look, when I when I left Ghana mm. um, school, I remember I made a promise to myself. Mm. I actually wrote a letter to myself that I was going to go to pursue um, my education. Mm. But I promised myself that I was going to return and I was going to leverage that education mm. to help play a role in, in not just Ghana, um, but in Africa's development. Mm. It's something that has always been a passion of mine. Um, and so there was no question in my mind and my heart. Mm. Um, that I was going to return. Mm. Even though, as Tilly said, from just a purely economic perspective, um, you know, I, I would have, I would have made a lot more um, capital uh, if I was overseas. I've shared this in your introduction. You do so many things, Sangu. I mean, I feel like you wear like 10 hats and that continues to grow every year. You know, could you share with us? I've like, been cutting down. Could you share with us, like, to- what are your top three hats that you wear? And describe to our audience, like, what are you trying to achieve with each one of those endeavors? If that question makes sense, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, sure. Um I mean, one hat, of course, is obviously as a, you know, as a, as a entrepreneur slash business leader, as chairman and chief executive officer of CarePoint, um, I'm responsible for running our global business, uh, which 
we created this company from scratch. Mm. Um, but then we acquired a number of different groups. And we now have a tech-forward healthcare system we're building. Mm. Um, we have about 65 hospitals and clinics mm. in Egypt, Kenya, Ghana, and Nigeria. Mm. Seven, over a million patients. Mm. And with, you know, with over 2,200 Employees. Mm. Um, so with that, the key focus for us really is, uh, you know, we say we're building Africa's healthcare future, right? So it's really about how do we leverage technology? How do we leverage our platform and, and the inherent advantages of scale where we have economies of scale and scope? Um, how do we leverage a patient-centric approach to care and, and take all of that and build in this, um, you know, transformative healthcare system that will, will improve quality outcomes, improve customer experience, and simultaneously improve also financial performance. Mm. Um, we've been investing heavily in in virtual uh, you know, in, in, in virtual doctors' offices and telemedicine to, mm -hmm. as part of our push to democratize access. Uh, so that's one hat. Mm -hmm. Second hat, of course, is Golden Palm Investments, the venture capital firm I co-founded some 16, 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there we basically back some of the most promising tech and tech businesses across Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, we backed the likes of Flatawe, Vandela, mm -hmm. Wasoko, M Pharma, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and it's something we continue to be very active and and very proud about right mm -hmm. um the, the portfolio companies are having tremendous impact mm -hmm. uh creating jobs solving problems leveraging technology um and uh, and helping to develop the ecosystem mm -hmm. and then the third hat i'll probably talk about is uh education education transformed my life mm -hmm. so it's something i'm very passionate about um, so I'm involved in a number of different, I express, uh, the giving back for education in a number of different ways. So with my foundation, mm. which I launched last year, okay, one of the key verticals is education where, um, I've set up a scholarship at Harvard mm. to support, um, African girls. Mm. Um, we have, uh, a financial aid fund at the Petty School to support students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, set up a scholarship at Ashesi University. Um, and, uh, and have a general scholarship program mm -hmm. where we've been funding, we have a number of students uh, who are currently pursuing uh, their studies in different countries abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, a Sangudeli scholar at 
Harvard Medical School, one at Harvard School of Public Health. Wow. There's one, there are a couple doing PhDs in the UK. Um, there's one who's doing medical school in the Caribbean. Mm. Um, and the idea behind supporting all these students is, is that they'll come back mm. and take their their learnings and experiences and use that to better develop our, our country and our continent. Mm. Um, and then, of course, I, I played a role in the institutions themselves. I serve on the board of Ashesi. Mm. I serve on the board of overseers of Harvard. Mm. Um, I'm on the board of Ghana International School. You know, I was on the board of the Petty School. I just took a leave of absence from that. Mm. Um, and I've been involved with the Rhodes Scholarship mm. for West Africa. Uh, so both with my uh, treasure, time, and talent, mm. I've been investing in, uh, in education. Mm. Well, those are very impressive endeavors. And I'm just trying to, you know, sometimes I, I don't even know what questions to ask, right? Because I'm trying to understand, like, how is it your brilliance? Do you have, like, a big imagination? I'm just trying to, you know, understand how you just go for these big things, right? Like, oh, let me open a scholarship uh, at Harvard, you know, and support more people. Or let me, you know, build the next, you know, I don't know. Healthcare, <laughs> just like like what what is behind that? And, and I mean, don't be humble. I'm just trying to learn from you. <laughs> you know, like how do you allow yourself to have such big dreams um, instead of I don't know going about your life in a very yeah. Look, I, yeah. I think there are a couple of things, right? Mm -hmm. Um. One is, to whom much is given, much mm. is expected. Mm. And so, it doesn't make sense that I would have had the opportunities I did mm. to have gone to all these great schools and all these other programs, whether it's uh, the World Economic Forum Young Global Leader mm. or the Tutu Fellowship, or, you know, the Soros Fellowship, or TED, mm. the TED Fellowship. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to me to, to have all those opportunities mm. and not leverage it for something bigger than yourself. Mm. Um, I almost feel like I have a more um, to give back. Mm in a very meaningful way. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, the, the other thing also ties to what I told you and, and why I keep emphasizing mm. that it really starts from childhood. Mm. Um, there are so many children I see where parents kill their dreams. Mm. Um, and I was very, very blessed to have had parents. Mm never killed my dreams mm. Mm. 
No, I, I really like that. Actually, what you said, like to whom much is given, much is expected is, is also one of my life mantras. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like, yeah, there is that not moral obligation almost to, to do good with what you've been given, but also um, to your point, there is a big piece of also nurture, like the way you've, you were raised, how, you know, you were given mm-hmm. a platform to just... Uh, be who you are and explore your gifts, you know, unhindered. Uh, exactly. Which, yeah, which which is bearing fruits now. Uh, so thanks to your parents, I guess. Um, okay, so all these pursuits certainly have to, you know, exceed a lot of energy. Um, why do you keep pushing yourself and, and where do you get the energy to do all of these things that you're doing? You know, when I was young, mm. my mother had this, uh, I was about four or five old. Mm. It was a very weird exercise she made me do. Mm. She would say, before I say my prayers, she would let me, I'd have to look at the mirror mm. and ask myself, what had I done with the day? Right. Mm. And she used to tell me that the hours are flying and the days never return. Wow. And that every day is a gift from God. Mm. So every day you wake up, it's not guaranteed. You have today, 24 hours gift. What are you going to do with it? Um, and it's a weird thing to let a little child do. Mm. But what it does over time is it fills you with a certain burning urgency, mm. recognizing that life is a gift, mm. that tomorrow is not guaranteed, and all you have is today to make a difference. Mm. So you try to make it count. And you do that every day of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's seizing the day literally. And I think there's that compounding effect over the years, right? Like if you start doing that at at, <laughs> at seven, um, you know, by the time you're like 30 or in your 30s, yeah, you've, yeah, you've been really doing um, the most you can with your day, which which uh, over time people wonder like, oh, how do you do everything? But it's something you probably practiced um, for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So going to your heart as an investor, so as an investor in various businesses, I mean, some of them you've mentioned and, you know, they are doing well and doing amazing things on the continent. Um, beyond the viability of it, like a given business model, what are some intangible things do you look for in any given founder that inform your decision to, you know, back their business or not? Oh, uh, you know, especially because we invest in such early stage businesses. Mm. It's all about the people. Mm. We really spend a lot of time doing DD. Mm. on the founders and the team. What kind of person is he or she? Mm. Um, 
that they are an asshole. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Do they? Do they? How do they treat people? Mm. Um, what's their track record? Mm. Talking to people they've worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, character reference checks. Mm-hmm. There have been, interestingly enough, there have been some investments mm-hmm. that we've walked away from mm-hmm. because of character reference issues. Even though the idea was great, right? Idea is great, company is doing well, mm-hmm. but we have concerns. Mm-hmm. And we're justified mm. because in some of those cases, uh, the company has run into trouble mm-hmm. because of certain, you know, decisions and judgments by the founder, mm-hmm. which, you know, did not come as a surprise to us because of the character DD we had done. Mm-hmm. So it's really important. I always say early stage investing is like marriage. Mm. And divorce is very expensive. Yeah, true. So, you know, we really make sure that the founder is is the right person you want to back. Mm. Because the other stuff, I think, is is easier to Mm. figure out. Yeah, um, I'm going to go a little off script here. So one thing that I don't know, I mean, I know, you know, you're from Ghana, but you do business across the continent. And uh, sometimes, you know, when I'm having conversations with my friend, we sometimes talk about how, um, you know, African entrepreneurs, um, I mean, they're up to amazing things in your book. Uh, You've, you know, interviewed several entrepreneurs who are doing incredible things. But I also see, um, I, I don't know what to call it, if it's a syndrome or a tendency, you know, of um, entrepreneurs who are just part of like endless pitch competitions and, um, you know, winning awards and winning um, things left and right. And, and sometimes I, I fear that it can paint entrepreneurship as this I don't know sexy journey that you embark on uh, but when you kind of dig deep into some of those businesses you're like I don't actually understand how <laughs> these people make money they're probably just winning grants uh, is that something you also see as an investor uh, or you know from your experience like working with a lot of African entrepreneurs is that a concern that you have or it, it's yeah, I, I, I mean, look, there's a, there's, a, there's a balance that has to be appropriately striked, mm-hmm. right? It's not a bad thing per se if an entrepreneur is being recognized for good work they're doing. Mm-hmm. It becomes a problem if that's what they then start to focus on, excuse me, mm-hmm. which happens. It becomes seductive. Mm-hmm. And they are now more focused on awards and conferences yeah. than on building the business. And then you get distracted. So that's the concern. Mm. But I don't think inherently just 
you know, I don't think it's just inherently problematic, mm. if you know what I mean. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, yeah, I think it depends on which extent it's happening. Um, how would you say doing business in Africa is different from doing business elsewhere? Um, I feel like there has, from my experience, because I'm also in the business world uh, or I've been in the business world in the past, I know that, yeah, running a business in Africa is is, is a completely different experience from like running it elsewhere. What, what has been your experience? Yeah, I mean, look, there, there are some similarities and there are some differences. Mm. Uh, even within Africa, there are, there's a spectrum, there are nuances. Mm. Doing business in Ghana, it's not exactly the same as Kenya, not the same as Egypt. Mm. Um, so there are certain things where, you know, you see more of an alignment mm. and others where you don't really... Uh, all right. So we're going to move to, you know, Sango the coach. Uh, like I said, you don't necessarily call yourself a coach, but you know, you're well in a position to do that. Um, so if, if you were my coach and I came to you saying that, you know, like I know that I have great potential, but I'm not pushing myself enough. Um, and for example, saying, you know, I know that there is so much I'm leaving on the table and that I need to push myself to like a um, like to 10x my current performance and results. Like, how do you, would you go about helping me? Uh, like, what are some levers that typically need to be pushed when someone is not where they know they could be? Yeah. Well, look, I'll first start off with a caveat. Mm. I'm not a coach. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that I know. <laughs> there, there are people who do this for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have a life coach, for example, mm-hmm. um, and and so they're they're experts uh, with a wealth of knowledge and experience. Mm. But I can offer some ideas. Um, what I'd say is where you have this disconnect mm. between your aspirational performance and the reality. Mm. It, it kind of to me requires some unpacking. Okay. Um, it's it, it's going to be important to actually before you speed up to try and increase your productivity, you first need to slow down. Mm. Hmm. Just understand what's going on. Listen to yourself. Listen to your body. Mm-hmm. And only when you've had that clarity and comfort mm-hmm. would it be so much easier to be able to, you know, move up and improve productivity and do all those other things mm-hmm. because you would have fully understood what's going on with yourself. You, so that introspection is important. Mm. That clarity is important. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, after you get clarity, I mean, does clarity automatically come with uh, the motivation? I mean, to 10x your performance? Like, what else is there? I mean, you know, motivation, the most sustainable form of motivation has to come from within. Mm. 
right? Because otherwise, they'll, they'll be ephemeral. Mm. Um, something else I've always been curious about you is also, like, I mean, you talked earlier about um, this exercise that your mom had you do, um, you know, so it sounds like you're someone who really goes up, you seize the day. Um, but in, in, in more detail, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, like Peter Drucker, you know, he's, he's, he talks a lot about like managing oneself, understanding your strengths and weaknesses and values so that you can allocate your, you know, time, energy, you know, to give yeah. your highest contribution. Uh, like how do you manage yourself, uh, Sangu? Yeah. Like no, it's a very energy. good question. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I've had to invest in infrastructure to allow me to do this effectively. Mm. Uh, so I have in my office, I have I have an executive assistant. Mm. I have a PA. Mm-hmm. And I have a chief of staff. Mm. So that supports infrastructure is what allows me quite frankly, mm. to be able to focus on what I do better. Mm. Okay. Um, how about, you know, managing like your mental space, you know, cause for example, like if you are on five boards and you have two companies and, um, pursuing a PhD, I mean, how do you not get overwhelmed? How do you, I mean, I'm sure you probably had to practice this over time, but how do you manage to just focus on what's in front of you? Is it from practice? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix of things. Mm. Um, I think that being, you know, kind of having a support system helps. Right. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, um, having a clear sense of kind of focus mm-hmm. and where you and where you can and want to have impact allows you to reprioritize your day differently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of how I've approached it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, when, when someone reads your bio, I'm like, wow, this person does the impossible with their time. Right. Cause I'm, I'm sure there's someone who does like a 10th of what you're doing and they're like, Oh, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. Um, but you will never have enough time. You have to make time. It's important. True. Yeah. So yeah, like it, like it would be good to kind of know like people who are performing at your level, like, yeah. Do you track your time down to like 15 minutes? Like maybe there are no hacks or tricks. I mean, everybody has to probably find their own system, but yeah, I've always kind of been curious, like how you manage to, to not drop balls. Um, but it sounds like you have yeah, a, I mean, a strong team that's helping you. Yeah. There's a team, right? Yeah. So, uh, every week, for example, mm. um, we have an office meeting, mm. uh, where everyone does them. And we review all the meetings in the past week. Mm. So that allows us to make sure no drops our balls. Mm. And we do this consistently. Mm. Mm. 
Okay, so one of my other questions is like, why is mental health such an important part of like say our our lives to take care of? And I know you've been very open about uh, have having had like mental health challenges in the past. Um, do you want to share your journey uh, towards taking better care of your mental health? Yeah, I mean, look, growing up in West Africa, we had a lot of stigma, mm. um, a lot of toxic masculinity, mm. and a lot of warped ideas, really, mm. about mental health, seeing it as this only disease. Right, this thing that only affects white people. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, and then, of course, I go through some traumatic experiences. And I, mm. I, I don't even, I remember at the time the school, a uh, nurse school counselor, you know, recommended therapy. And I thought she had lost her marbles. Mm. <laughs> I'm not an Obruni, I thought. <laughs> it's, these are not uh, things Africans deal with. And of course, we know that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. 100 million Africans currently live with depression. Mm-hmm. And that's an understated number. Yeah. 66 million women on record, 34 million men. Mm-hmm. I look at that 34 million number, and I know that number is higher. Mm-hmm. Because a number of those men surveyed said no. Mm, when the real answer is yes Mm. we know it's the stigma the the ignorance the fear Mm. the shame Mm. but we've been pushing I've been pushing the message that we need to end the stigma that to be vulnerable does not make you weak it makes you human Mm. and that we need to fight literally fight the stigma and and these constraints that prevent people from living their true, authentic lives. Mm. Yeah, like is there like a particular event that uh, triggered your passion about mental health, or is it just from your? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. gave. Uh, yeah, go for. Go I ahead. gave a TED talk on this. Mm, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, there were a number of events that happened in my personal life. And then, of course, what happened with one of my best friends mm. from childhood mm. and his struggles, mm. um, the convergence of um, of his situation and mine kind of triggered it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an important conversation, especially with men. I think, yeah, there's a lot of... Um there's a lot, of, a lot of stigma still, you know, in, in African society. Absolutely. Yeah. Getting, for example, getting help. I mean, it's one thing to say like, okay, I, I acknowledge that I need help, but to go out of your way to walk into that, let's say therapist office and ask for help or openly talk about it. Yeah. It's still, you know, very stigmatized. Um, I think, I mean, I think it makes a huge difference to see someone like you who's, Oh, yeah, absolutely. you're still performing, you're still doing well, you have success, but you, you know, you can also show others that, hey, I still struggle and it doesn't undermine um, what I'm able to achieve in the world. So you're doing an amazing work in that in that regard. Thank you. Very kind of you. Mm. 
Hmm. To we are coming, you know, close to an end. Um, I'm just curious to know, like, you know, with with all the success that you have had, um, what is what is in the future for you? I mean, what, for example, I don't know if you're planning on retiring. Let me not make assumptions, but like, <laughs> 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 what kind of like contribution? will make you feel like, you know what, um, there's a place in, I mean, in, in the Bible where Paul says, like, I feel like I've been, I don't know what the verse says, like poured out like an offering, you know, like he felt like, you yeah, know what, yeah. I've done my work, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, like what, what contribution would make you say something like that? Like, you know, what, I've done my part, um, to contribute to the African continent or whatever purpose that you feel well, like you're living for? I don't think one ever finishes doing their part. Mm. I think that the fight for a better, more just, more inclusive um, Africa mm. is an unending journey. Mm. And it requires constant contestation um it's it's homework with no end date mm. we we can't just rest on our laurels and also i mean to end um i'm curious to know i mean i'm going to be like oprah and ask you like what do you know for sure you know with with all the the, the lived experience you've had i mean are there some things that you're convinced of that um you would want to pass on to i don't know the next generation or your mentees or other people? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, to me, I, I just, uh, I would, I, I amended my mother's counsel. Mm. Say every day is a gift, mm. right? Um, tomorrow is not guaranteed. You just have to, mm. what can you do with the day? And importantly, mm. how can you impact just one person today? Mm. It could be just doing a kind deed, mm-hmm. helping someone out, something simple. Mm-hmm. But I think that if we all take that approach to living, mm-hmm. um, we'll be kinder. Mm-hmm. We will be more authentic, and we will will pursue our passions, mm-hmm. and the world will be a better place for it. I agree. Thank you. We are close to done, but what are you currently reading? I'm curious. I am currently reading Cast. Okay. The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkinson. Okay. Uh, brilliant, had... brilliant writer. Mm. Um, she draws parallels between India's caste system mm. and the U.S. system. It's a phenomenal read. Hmm. I'll check it out. I haven't heard of it, but I will check it out. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Sangu. Thank you for making time. I don't take it for granted. I appreciate your time and all the wisdom that you've shared. Um, I'm really hoping that our audience will get something out of it and um, hopefully go on to uh, push themselves and accomplish even better things with their lives. So... Thank you for contributing to this world. 
of ours. My pleasure. <laughs> yeah. All the best with your show. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. 